the Veterans Affairs Department is setting up cybersecurity checkpoints before a new computer application can get on the VA network. For the IT staff, this is about becoming a great engineering organization like those in the private sector. Kurt Delbeni is the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Information and Technology and the Chief Information Officer at VA. He tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about how VA is updating its approach to something every agency deals with, known as the Authority to Operate, or ATO. So I think they should love the ATO process because it is one of the gates that exists where you can step back and say we have a decision to make as to whether something should be on our network or not. And so what we're pushing towards is what I've found in the VA so far is that we're really good about doing the the required procedures to get all the documentation together. But what we have an opportunity to do is have more of that last look of saying, if I look at everything in aggregate, do I feel good about the overall security of that system? Or should I say, no, these are the three things that I actually don't feel good. And they can be three initiatives that we've got in terms of things like zero trust, for instance. And as a result, we're going to say, you've got to come back in a certain period of time. Even if we grant the ATO now, it's for a much shorter period of time, and we want these things remediated. And then the other thing is you've got to actually make sure that team has the resources to do that remediation. So it can't just be, no, no, go back and and change the world. You've got to be reasonable in terms of what you expect them to do, but you've got to think of it as a gate, I think. A lot of these have been doing for quite a while. The plan of action milestones, we've known that, that yep. exists. We've known that agencies have, have always said, well, we'll grant the, the something that doesn't exist called the interim ATO. Where are you at with this process? Is it piloting it? Is it just an idea right now and you hope to get it going? Is it in process in, in a big way? Well, we're starting to focus on the most critical systems we have at the VA. And we're starting to look at each of them and figuring out what it would mean to be more rigorous in that approval process. And we're in the early days. I mean, I've been in the role for eight months now, and this is a place where I say I've, we've, we've got a set of systems we're looking at, and we're going, to ta- we're going to look at that ATO and say, do we overall, will technical people say we feel good about it or not, and what remediations do we need? The other thing I'll say, as you say, is the POAMS process. It's great to ha- be rigorous about defining the, the plans of action. However, they can't just sit in a big database and not get done. And so it, it can be a little bit of a crutch unless you're rigorous about making sure that those things get signed off. Over the years, VA has been labeled by IGs and other auditors as uh, cyber as a material weakness. We, we've seen the, the FISMA reports and we've seen the reports from the IG. Every CIO I've talked to over the last 15, 20 years have said, that's my biggest priority is, is get rid of the material weakness. And I think you guys have gotten closer. You've gotten better reports from IGs. Obviously, that's one of your goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to tell me it's not. I know that. What are some of those other steps you're taking to kind of address those big hairy issues of, of cyber. Uh, the ATO yeah. is a good example. Yeah, I think the FISMA process actually, coming from commercial, you think of it as this impediment keeping you from selling your product to the federal government. I actually think it's a good process. I think they're fairly rigorous in terms of, of reviewing our cyber posture. And so we have been working with our CIS team, our internal security team, to say, what are the most important things for us to resolve? And then I meet with the team every month. We have an initiative that says we're going to do these first. We're going to hold the teams accountable. We're going to go from these to these to these in a, in a succession of waves to improve that. But there's no solution other than doing the hard work. In a lot of cases, you'll find that we'll come up with a great, in the past, we've come up with a great plan, but there hasn't been the execution follow-through. And again, it comes back to engineering rigor. You just got to um, define what you're going to do and then make sure you get it done.
I want to jump over to something you mentioned at a hearing back in June timeframe. It was May around paying for uh, employees in terms of uh, cyber pay. And you yeah. you'd mentioned at the hearing, I want to, we're working with OPM and, and potentially the CIO council on figuring this out. Is there any update on that or is there anything you're doing outside of that to, to address this pay gap? Because I know like DHS, for instance, has their cyber teams that where they're able to pay a little bit more because and that came from Congress. But are, are you also looking at any sort of a, any update on that initiative or be anything else VA is doing to address this challenge? We're continuing the work. We're pushing hard on that. It does have to come from OPM. Everything we can do within the confines of what we have the ability to do today, we are doing. But at some point, the actual we need a special pay scale because the numbers are significantly off. And that gets, you know, you could do it just, we could try to do that just for the VA. It's a similar problem with all the other agencies as well. And that's why the OPM wants to get involved. But we're pushing as hard as we can there. That is the, but it has to go through that process. So we're, we're just pushing hard. Where is it in the process, I guess, is the question. I mean, I know it's up to OPM, but... Well, it's not you, up to OPM. Well, we're part of a cross-agency group that is defining it. We have defined exactly what we think the gaps are. And so I'm not... I think it, we're going to try to get it through this fall. It has to go... It would have to go through legislation to ultimately get done. And that is a very uncertain process. But we want to get our part of it done this fall. You mentioned the PACT Act and specifically the impact it's going to have on the VBA. How are you, from a CIO's perspective, from an IT perspective, helping VBA and and the rest of VA really ramp up to to accept this potentially big wave of applications that you said is is great, is exactly what the PACT Act is supposed to do? Well, there's multiple ones, angles to this. The first one is they have to have, when we bring on more agents, they have to have PCs, and they have to have their PCs very quickly. They have to be able to log on. That's the more mundane aspect of it, but very hard to do. The second thing is, how do you make sure that when somebody goes to VA.gov, they know how to apply for benefits, and what are all the different ways that they would come into the system and want to be helped? The next thing is, they're going to get this onslaught of additional claims. We need to be able to to process those faster. And there, there's an opportunity to do automation, and the automation has multiple angles. One, it's about bringing together in an automated fashion the data that's necessary from the different systems so that the claims adjudicator can make the decision more quickly. Two, it's about in more simple cases where, for instance, we fully automated things around hypertension, where the date where the actual decision rule is quite simple. You basically can pull together the data, and in certain cases, you can make that decision automatically. And so we're pushing to do more and more of those cases, but do it in a very mature and supportable way. And so you start with the simpler cases. And then the third thing we're doing is if you think about the average claims application as having multiple elements, you need to be able to break that down into its pieces. And each one has data demands, but it could be that individual elements could be automated, whereas the adjudicator has to pull those all together into a single package. The PC piece you just said more mundane but difficult with supply chain challenges. Are you facing any supply chain challenges that you know of, like in terms of buying laptops or desktops? We, like everybody, have had that challenge. We actually have ordered a large number of PCs because we saw this coming and have seen it coming for a long time. And so in an organization of 400,000-plus desktops, we always have to have a flow coming, and we've adjusted our flow. We do have the fortune of being a large source of demand, and so we've worked closely with, with PC suppliers to make sure we've got enough demand. Automation you brought up I thought was really interesting, the way you talked about we can set up automation to, for instance, look at if these five things are true, then the person 99.9% of the time gets approved or gets denied right. or whatever it is. 
is that actually happening or is that an idea? Where are you at with applying no, that? Actually, we have already automated a few claims scenarios and we've also done the first uh, breaking up of a claim into multiple parts and automated one of the piece parts as well. So it's actually in place. Kurt Delbeni is the Chief Information Officer at Veterans Affairs. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller, check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together. Because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I realized so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.